lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in here today, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Wow. 888-933-93 is the number. That's 888-933-93. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us. That's D-E-A-C-E and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show over on Parlor at Steve Dace. And check out our new YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Also, don't forget, December the 15th, my new book releases Nationwide, the novella sequel to a nefarious plot called A Nefarious Carol. You can get pre-orders and details on the plot of the sequel to A Nefarious Plot by going over to Amazon.com and looking at the page for A Nefarious Carol. Just put that there in the search engine and it'll pop right up. You can find out what it's about and also uh, make the decision to make my kids Christmas a good one this year by pre-ordering the book uh, so daddy can provide and the book's okay too, but really, I just I, I need you to subsidize my kids' Christmas. Is that better? It's all been better. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Better, best, better, best. What what version of good? Thank you. You better, you bet. Yes. Thank you, uh, Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend. Also, I want to thank Mike Trendcamp, one of our loyal listeners, sent us some really cool gift cards uh, in the mail for all three of us. So that was very very kind. I've now uh, Todd has now been converted into the power of pumpkin spice. I'm in. You're in. I'm getting stuff. It's, it, it's, he's getting free stuff. That's all that it took. Yes. All right. He does understand the doctrines of grace. He's getting free stuff that he probably doesn't deserve because of the power of the pumpkin spice. So you are in. I'm, I'm messing with the dark magic now, though. Is it a fickle mistress? No, no, no. It's not dark magic. It's the best smelling magic. I'll tell you that. Okay. All right. So I wanted to thank Mike Trenkamp for the uh, gift cards before we got into today's show. Very, very kind, Mike. Thank you very much. I mentioned we have a jam-packed show today. Before I get to all of that, I want to tell you, though, about Built Bar, because I love Built Bar. I've got a couple of Built Bars sitting right over there on the table for me uh, for different breaks uh, during the course of, an, of a long broadcast day today. Why do I love Built Bar? Because it is just as good as pretty much most of the candy bars you're going to buy, but every bit more nutritious. It's the best protein bar you have ever had. I promise you, you've not had one better than this. And the other thing about it too, that I love is it's easy on the tummy because there's other good tasting protein bars out there, but I don't know about you. I can't digest the stuff. And then the ones that aren't really good, I can digest those just fine. And then I don't want to eat them. I finally found one Costco brand protein bar that I liked and could digest, but it was only like one flavor and it's hard to just eat the same flavor all the time. And then I heard on another show I listened to about Built Bar, I ordered the box, couldn't believe how much the host was raving about it. And like, there's no way it's that true. I'm ordering a box. And then when it's not good, I'm coming at him online. And it was even better than he told me it was. So now I'm the one now spreading the gospel, first of pumpkin spice, but now of Built Bar, 18 flavors. They're all covered in chocolate. Use the promo code Steve to get 20% off your first order right now at BuiltBar.com. Promo code Steve at BuiltBar.com. No, not Built Bar. No, they get stuff done at Built Bar. They don't just talk. They like do things. BuiltBar.com. Promo code Steve. See what I did there? I do. I can work my bitterness into any message right now. That's, that's just, my spiritual gift. Yes, it is. It always right. has been. All right, coming up on the show today, we are jam-packed. 
Next hour, the one and only Dr. Scott Atlas, now of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. He's moving on up since we first helped discover him way back many moons ago, like six months ago. He is going to join us with the latest on masks, panic porn, COVID, etc. He's our special guest for Fake News or Not coming up later in the program. Also, at the bottom of this hour, Robert Cahaley is going to join us. He was the author of the most accurate battleground state polling in the last election. They're called the Trafalgar Group. What's their methodology? What's the secret to their success without, you know, ruining ruining all their proprietary knowledge? But I want you guys to know why they got it right. Were they just lucky? Because that happens sometimes. I mean, Nate Silver just got lucky in 2012. What's he been right about, like about anything since? Do you Can you guys think of like anything? Not really. Not really. I mean, he got lucky once. Right. Hey, and that's more than most people get a one shining moment in life. Right. The old Andy Warhol line. Everybody's famous for 15 minutes. Right. Give Nate Silver credit, dude. I ain't here to hate. I'm, I'm not hating the player. I'm hating the game. All right. Dude nailed one election and has made who knows how much he's he's made himself into the left media's Mel Kiper Jr. off of that one call. But props to him. Right. Hey, dude, I made a whole career off off of getting an Iowa caucus cycle right once in 2008 with Mike Huckabee and. It worked out for me, right? Sure. Now, I would might argue I've got a little bit better track record on being right about things since then than him. But that also may not be bragging all that much when you look at his track record since then. That's a little bit like being the one-legged man at the ass-kicking contest, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? That being said, um, Trafalgar Group may have just gotten lucky. I mean, did Robert Cahaley just decide, you know what, I, I want to build up my own polling firm and these other polling firms are all going one way. I'll just corner the market on going the other way. And if I'm right, snake eyes, it pays off. Have we seen that kind of grifting in politics before? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So did he do that? Or does he have real methodology? Meaning a construct, a, a, an algorithm, a process that can withstand just, hey, I got this one election right. And it was an all-time outlier election where a guy won the presidency in the Electoral College by a pretty dominant amount. But when you look inside those numbers, it was really by 78,000 votes, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk to Robert Cahaley, and I'm going to warn you now, it will probably be more on his methodology than his current numbers. I want to know how he gets to his math, and I want you to know, because that'll tell us whether or not we can trust to follow him these final two weeks, right? Yeah. So we're gonna I'm gonna give you a kind of the conversation we might have if he were if we worked on a campaign together. It'll be that kind of a conversation when Robert Cahaley joins us here at the bottom of the hour. So and then we'll react to it afterwards. Don't uh, how pressed for time is he? Which Cahaley? No, not at all. See if it's possible that he would join us for some after the top of the next hour. Okay. All right. Because then, if we if then we can maybe go into more specifics if okay. he has that kind of time. Sure. All right? But th- to me, the more important issue is his methodology, and not so much his results. I mean, because we need to know: did he f- come up with a way to identify an electorate that everybody else missed four years ago? Right. I, yeah. we, I think we need to know that first and foremost. But hey, if he's got extra time to then go into the results. Let's do it. All right. I'll do what I can. All right. So before we get to all of that, though, here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by another triumph of the Bush administration. Chief Justice John Roberts sided once again with the progressive wing of the Supreme Court yesterday in denying Republicans' request 
to put a hold on a lower court's order that would permit ballots in Pennsylvania to be counted even if they arrive up to three days after the presidential election. The lower court ruled that if the ballots were postmarked by election day, they still had three days to be counted. This essentially opens the door more easily for post-election shenanigans to happen in a key battleground state. Investors Business Daily came out with a new national poll this morning showing a tightening race between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. They have Biden with a 48 to 46 percent advantage over Trump. Investors Business Daily was the second most accurate national pollster in the 2016 election. As Steve pointed out this morning, two weeks before the 2016 election on October 24th, Donald Trump was sitting at 42.3 percent in the Real Clear Politics polling average. Today is two weeks before the 2020 election, and he's sitting at 42.3 percent. The Trafalgar Group, the most accurate battleground state pollster of the 2016 election, released some new polls showing Joe Biden with a 47.6 to 46.3 lead over Trump in Wisconsin. Some of the newer polls also show Trump with a 46.5 to 45.9 point lead in Michigan and a 48.4 to 46.1 point lead in Florida. The debate commission has unilaterally made the decision to implement a mute button for Thursday night's debate. The candidate who's not speaking will have their microphone automatically muted when the other is talking. The cycle of encroaching big tech is nearly complete once more after last week's Orwellian censorship of the Hunter Biden stories from the New York Post. The Senate Judiciary Committee has postponed its plans to vote on subpoenas compelling the CEOs of Twitter and Facebook to testify on allegations of anti-conservative bias after, according to reports, some Republicans expressed reservations about the tactic. In case you're wondering, the cycle of big tech censorship goes like this. Big tech gets more Orwellian. Conservatives are outraged. Republican senators write strongly worded letters. Republican senators threaten big tech companies. Nothing actually happens. Everyone forgets. We're at the nothing actually happens stage, at least with the anti-conservative bias part. Speaking of big tech, Project Veritas caught a Google program manager talking on camera about election interference at the company in favor of Joe Biden. This guy Ritesh Lakar, a technical program manager at Google, is telling our journalists the truth about the company he has worked at for years. With the presidential election just days away, he is calling out his own friends in big tech. I disagree with uh, corporations playing God and taking away freedom of speech of both sides. Basically. You go to search and you type in like Donald Trump yeah. and it's like all negative. Yeah. And when you type in Joe Biden, it's all positive. Because it's skewed by the owners or the drivers of the algorithm. It's skewed by the owners and drivers of the other Like So if I say... The Justice Department is expected to file an antitrust lawsuit against Google today, alleging the company engaged in quote-unquote anti-competitive conduct to preserve their de facto monopoly on internet searches. Moving on, and for something completely different, the Fox Sports broadcasting duo of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman were caught on a hot mic before Sunday's Buccaneers-Packers game, remarking on the pregame flyover. It's a lot of jet fuel just to do a little flyover. 
That's your hard-earned money and your tax dollars at work. That stuff ain't happening with Kamala Biden ticket. I'll tell you that right now. And finally, New Yorker reporter and CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin has been suspended by the paper and placed on leave by the network, respectively, after he whipped out his penis and started masturbating on a Zoom call where he and other media figures were playing a war game about the upcoming election. The election simulate uh, the election simulation Zoom call incident was the subject of intense mockery online yesterday, not befitting of these airwaves. Speculation was aroused as to whether Tubin would resign from his positions at CNN and The New Yorker, but everyone's best guess is that he'll try to stick it out. Tubin's hands have been full ever since the Brett Kavanaugh debacle back in 2018, where he relentlessly pilloried the Supreme Court pick, saying, If Kavanaugh was your prospective babysitter and three people told you he could be a sexual predator, would you hire him to watch your kids? So perhaps Tubin was just exposing himself for who he really is. At the end of the day, as the Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro pointed out, quote, in all fairness, Tubin was just making clear what every single human being thinks of Zoom calls. They're masturbatory wastes of time. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's Montage brought to you by Brickhouse. You know, the pandemic didn't just test our economic endurance, but also exposed uh, what can be the cost of unhealthy lifestyles. Things like morbid obesity, chronic diabetes were a couple and remain a couple of the pre-existing conditions that COVID-19 targets the most. That's why you need to look for as many preventative opportunities you can uh, to get yourself healthier. One of those, Field of Greens by Brickhouse Nutrition. While other health products boast you know, just about a single vegetable they may have, Field of Greens pretty much has them all, like all the vegetables, like a dozen. Clinically researched essential fruits and vegetables plus green tea, ginger, uh, beets, a powerful combination, not only that supports heart health, but supports a healthy immune system, metabolism, blood pressure, digestion, and more. Field of Greens loaded with antioxidants, pre and probiotics. Just put one scoop in any glass of water-based drink and stir it and you're done. And you can uh, also uh, try for the first time for 15% off your first order with a 30-day supply with the promo code Steve when you go to BrickHouseSteve.com. The promo code Steve at BrickHouseSteve.com to get 15% off a 30-day supply. You can also subscribe if you like it. You want to get it every month. You can subscribe and get an extra 10% off every month as well. So if you want those two discounts, use my name, Steve, as your promo code. When you go to the website, BrickHouseSteve.com, that's BrickHouseSteve.com. There was um, an analytic I read yesterday that showed Twitter's attempt to ban the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop actually led to this thing getting at least three times the coverage it might have otherwise. Just like anytime something gets banned, it just creates more eyeballs to a a certain extent, right? So a bit of man bites dog there, all right? Um, Along those lines, the Presidential Debate Commission probably believes they're harming Donald Trump by putting in the mute button. I actually think the exact opposite is true. I think they have done him an unwitting favor. And I'm, I'm going to talk about why in the overtime today. That is, if we have this debate on Thursday. Um, but I, I think they've done him a favor. I think they've helped him against himself. We will talk about that today in the overtime. Uh, if you are a Blaze TV subscriber, we'll record it after today's show. Go to blazetv.com slash dace and you can watch it for yourself. And that's also where you can go if you're not yet a Blaze TV subscriber but are interested in becoming one with a discounted subscription to Blaze TV. Go to blazetv.com slash dace. Get a discounted subscription today so you don't miss today's overtime or anything else. 
at blazetv.com slash dace. I want to go now to what is inside of your montage, Aaron, and the, the vicious cycle of big tech censorship that you pointed out. Yesterday, I talked about what I think is at stake in this election. That I think that there is a real effort by the hard left in this country to do the country in by irrevocably ending your trust in the, in the integrity of our electoral process. I just, I just got an email from Monmouth University. And you've heard me say before, when I was on the Cruz campaign, Monmouth was one of the public pollsters we, we actually had respect for, right? All right. So I just got an email from Monmouth University. And it was, now, now understand the email address they sent it to was steve at stevedace.com. Here's why that's important. Monmouth University sent an email to steve at stevedace.com asking my wife, Amy, if she would like to opt in and take part in their poll of the state of Iowa. So what did you think I did? I logged in and took part. Okay. So to Steve at stevedace.com, an email was sent asking if my wife, Amy wanted to opt in to take part in their poll. And I went through their poll. It was nine questions, answered them the way that I knew my wife would. Um, except the final question, because I don't know what her position on it is. So I would, I answered it my way. And the final question was, how confident are you in the, in the elect, that the electoral process will be fair? And I put, not at all. Now, I, I have to wonder, number one, about Monmouth's ability to identify voters. If they send an email to steve at stevedace.com wondering if Amy would like to opt in and take part in their Iowa poll. It thinks maybe after uh, November 3rd, there's going to be an opening at Monmouth for director so, of data maintenance. <laughs> I don't want to bury the lead. Trust the experts, Steve. Okay. <laughs> I don't Jerk. want to bury. I don't want to bury. My name's in the email, guys. It's in the email. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to bury the lead. All right. But I mean, I was filling it out just as we were getting ready to start the show here, like 15 minutes or 20 minutes ago while we were talking about what was coming up on the show. I was filling it out while we were talking. Um, because I also wanted to see what their questions were and 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 how that was handled. But that goes back to the final question. I, I think there is an there's there's an effort to have you lose faith in the process because these people are deconstructionist, as Todd likes to say, they're stained glass window smashers. They're iconoclasts. They're they're nihilistic iconoclasts, meaning that to the to the to to the crown, um, the American colonials at the Boston Tea Party were iconoclast. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, to Rome in the first century, the Christian church was iconoclastic. To the Sanhedrin in the first century, Christ was an iconoclast, right? What does Caiaphas say? Better for this one man to die than for this whole nation to perish. They, they viewed him as, an up, as a disruptor of the norm. So not all iconoclasts are created equally, right? Absolutely. In, in this case, though, they're nihilistic iconoclasts. They just want to tear down every structure and norm and just replace it, not even with like a cohesive worldview, but just emotional impulse. And I think that's what's at stake in this election. 
And I think the only person standing between us and that is Trump. It wouldn't be my preference for him to be the only person standing between us and that. Just like it wasn't my preference that Michigan once started John O'Corn and Nick Sheridan at quarterback against Ohio State. Not my preference. I mean, we would have preferred we signed Terrell Pryor instead, but we didn't. He went to Ohio State, so we played against him with a walk-on quarterback. There's lots of things. Not my preference that the Detroit Lions have won one playoff game in 62 years. Would that be my preference? No. No, not my preference. Not my preference. I saw my Detroit Tigers make the playoffs every year for like a decade and not win a World Series. Would that have been my preference? Did like I like advocate for that to be the outcome? You did not. I did not. No. So it would not. It's not my preference that standing between us and a mob that is trying to drag this country into a civil war and a real one is Donald J. Trump. Not my preference. Didn't vote for him last time. Did everything I could to stop him from even getting on <laughs> winning the nomination last time. I was. With Free the Delegates. I fought him all the way to the convention, folks. But I don't get my preference in life a lot. We often don't, right? Correct. And and so we have to live with realities. And the reality is that rumbling you hear, those are the Visigoths coming over the wall. For all of his faults and all of his problems, and we have still no problem pointing them out, that, I'm going to talk about it in the overtime today. I think they're doing him a favor. I think they're going to force him to grow up Thursday by cutting his mic off. I think that actually helps him. It's like taking an alcohol, taking the keys away from an alky. You know, don't drink and drive. You know, you're, you're, we're calling Uber. You're doing him a favor. I think. I think they think they think they're reeling him in. I think they performed a necessary intervention, and I think you'll see that on Thursday night. But maybe you guys will disagree. We'll talk about that later. I know what their intent is. I just don't think their result will be the will match up with their intent. But it is what it is. We don't have a party that represents us. Anything that's that's good that's happened since tw- since he took office, he did it on his own. Name name anything the Republican Party did good independent of Donald Trump since 2000 since January of 2017 one independence thing. being op- the operative word yes independent of him nothing they didn't do anything good independent of him nothing did he do enough good not in my view could he have pushed and pressed on them more hell yeah did we talk about that for the last four years you bet you bet but anything good that happened the last four years it doesn't happen without him the Republican Party is what it was pre-Trump. 52 show votes to repeal Obamacare, and then they don't. And then they end up losing the House because they own the failure of Obamacare because of their failure to keep their promise. The Republican Party isn't, is, is, is helping to drag us into a civil war. Like I said yesterday, because they won't give us a way to peacefully punish people for acting so radically. And what you just saw with big tech... I'm not on the ballot. Are you on the ballot? No. I'm not. You're not. Names like Lindsey Graham. Who runs the Judiciary Committee, by the way? Lindsey Graham does. Is Lindsey Graham up for re-election, I believe? Yeah, he is. He's on the ballot. They're the ones that are getting actively censored right now by big tech. And yet in the final two weeks, (laughs) you know the way politics is supposed to work? The way politics is supposed to work is... That you feel guilty when the people that you elect go too far in exercising their power and authority. And then you are trying, then you have to figure out how to morally justify their tactics 
because you don't like the other side. That's how it typically works, right? That, that's how it has typically worked on this planet for a couple thousand years. You're always concerned about the bad stuff people will do wearing your jersey, right? Is that not how it typically works? Like, we have to argue for every shyster uh, televangelist forever. We have to debate the Crusades as everybody's one go-to answer on why they don't like Christianity, right? Right. That's typically how it works. Typically how human nature has worked is you have been concerned that the people wearing your jersey, carrying your banner, flying your flag, will go too far in advancing your cause and take you into areas you never intended. And then you'll have to justify that or apologize for it or what about it later on, right? That's typically what happens, right? Right. Except when it comes to the 21st century Republican Party in the United States of America. The opposite is true. They won't, they won't act at all in their self-interests. They're the ones being censored right out of losing an election here in two weeks from today. And they won't do anything about it. Nothing. FCC commissioner tweeted three days ago he's going to do something about Section 230. Heard nothing since. Oh, they filed a lawsuit today. That'll take three years probably to adjudicate. We'll all be banned. You'll be listening to Blaze Radio on some friggin' ham radio off a freighter off the Gulf of Mexico. Won't do any good. Won't even, won't even bother subpoenaing Jack and let Ted Cruz and Josh Halley put him under the microscope and pull his pants down in front of 100 million people before the election. They won't even do that. They won't even give you the show trial now. They won't even do that. Nothing. Which is why I believe by far the best outcome for conservatives two weeks from today is that Donald Trump wins. But if you were to ask me, what's the next best outcome? If he loses, the Republican Party is wiped out. Wiped out. Wiped the bleep out. Wiped out. When I took over at WHO here in Des Moines, the Republican Party had been wiped out. For the first time since post-Civil War, Democrats had total control of state government. There were only 17 Republican senators out of 100 in the state, or 50 in the state Senate. 17. Something like 40 members of the 100-member House. And they had the governor's mansion. We used my show in that environment to get people elected from grassroots and from just everyday common sense people that probably in a normal environment would never have a chance. When I left WHO in, 2000, in February of 2011, after the 2010 midterms, Republicans had gone from 17 state senators to now a tie in the state Senate had gone from barely 40 House members to a supermajority of 60. A Republican governor had been elected, and we became the first state ever to throw state Supreme Court justices out by popular referendum. Still the only time that's happened in American history. We're better off in that environment. If if you know those suburban women we talked about last week, well, he's mean tweets. So my kid, because he mean tweets, my daughter's going to have to lose her job on the track team to a dude with a mustache. That kind of crap. You know those kinds of suburban women? Make them choke on it. Hey, you voted for it. Hey, 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 the tweets were bad. Cool. Here's your hammer and sickle. Suck on it, as Jeffrey Tubin would say. Own it. Own that poop. It's a wage. You earned it. Spend it all. Make them choke on it. To me, that's, that is the second best outcome. If he's going to lose, 
then wipe this party out in the process. Chloroform it. Then we might have a chance. Because under the current leadership, we don't have an opposition party in America. There's an opposition leader, and he's clumsy at times, and he's douchey at times, and he's annoying at times. But at least he leads some form of opposition. Is it as complete as we would like? No. Is it as successful as we need? No. But is it the only opposition we have? Yeah. We don't have another one. We don't have another one. And that opposition, it's all that's standing between us deciding, I guess we'll see in the streets then. We got the guns. I think that's the only thing holding us back. Because you know they're not stopping on the left. There's no incentive to. They're never punished. They're never punished for going too far. Sure, we vote them out, but then stuff just happens like it would happen if they won anyway. They're never punished. They don't ever face a political price, really, for going this far. That's why they just keep going further. So there is no opposition party. There's an opposition leader who has his issues, but at least he's leading some opposition. Other than that, it's just unilateral left rule everywhere else you look. So to me, if the best case scenario is, I th- is that he wins. But the second best case scenario is if he's going to lose, wipe him out. Wipe. I'm, I'm talking like I want to see 35 Republican senators. So then they don't have to worry about repealing the filibuster. They can just roll them. I want to see like 80 members in the House. Wipe them out, man. Ground zero. And make the country choke on this Marxism then. Make them see what it really, really looks like. And have it shoved down their throats. More in a moment. So if you notice your hair isn't as full as it used to be, yeah, you know, losing your hair is no fun. So let's talk about options. You could go to your doctor for a hair loss treatment prescription, then visit the pharmacy, and then try not to go broke while you're trying not to go bald. But I've got a better option for you. Uh, you can try Keeps from the comfort of your own home, where you're going to get the same doctor-recommended, FDA-approved hair loss treatment, but Keeps offers the generic version. So you're going to get it for almost half the cost. Big discount. But there's more. How about the convenience? Uh, You do it all online. Answer a few questions, snap a few pictures of your hair, and a licensed doctor will review your info and then recommend the right hair loss treatment for you. And it's shipped directly to your door. And we've got one last incentive as well. You're already getting them at a discount. You're already getting it convenienced. How about an even bigger discount on the back end? Half off your first order. 50% 50% off your first order when you go to keeps.com slash grow, K-E-E-P-S, for keeps.com slash grow. The most accurate pollster from a battleground state perspective, and that's really what matters now. We don't have a, a national presidential election, guys. We have 50 state elections. And if you go back to 2016, a big deal is made about what happened with the popular vote, that Trump lost the popular vote uh, uh, by, what was it, 2 million votes, except that entire margin is from the state of California. In the other 49 states, Trump won the popular vote by 1.3 million votes. So we don't have a national referendum. We have 50 state elections. So what we should be looking at more than every, more than anything else this time of year now are battleground state polls. The most accurate battleground state poll in 2016 
was a plucky little outfit from down south that almost no one had heard of until they saw their outlier numbers popping up in the final weeks of the last campaign and just thought this just must be some GOP shill group. It can't possibly be true because it is so going against the prevailing wisdom. And yet they turned out to nail it. And the guy who is the author, the grand poobah of this polling firm joins us now. Robert Cahaley from the Trafalgar Group. Robert, my name is Steve Dace. Welcome to The Blaze, brother. How are you? Oh, it's good to be here. I'm happy to be on the show. So, Robert, we're going to have a, a two-part conversation with you, okay? And and the first part, I want to get into just the nuts and bolts without you giving away your proprietary information. But I've got a lot of experience with polling. I've done it. I've analyzed it. I've worked on campaigns. I was a strategist for the Ted Cruz campaign last time around. So I, I want our audience to look at to know what they can know without you revealing all of your trade secrets about your methodology and then in the in the second part we'll look at how you are specifically applying this and in what you're seeing in, in battleground states around the country my, my first question i want to ask you is how do you know nate silver made a career out of being right once he was right in 2012 Right. Giving huge odds that Barack Obama would be reelected when at this stage in 2012, two weeks out, the real clear politics polling average had the race tied between Romney and Obama. Um, Not coincidentally, two weeks out in 2016, Donald Trump was at 42.3 percent. That's exactly where he is today, two weeks before the election in the RCP polling average. But Nate Silver was adamant. Ninety percent odds Obama was going to win, told the media what they wanted to hear. And ended up being right. Now, he's not been right about a lot since, but he made his career out of that entire moment. How do we know you didn't do that from the right in 2016? What, what, was, what was the key in your methodology that you were able to identify voters that either people didn't look for because it wasn't the narrative they were pushing out from a biased perspective, or they just earnestly couldn't find? How do you and how do you so how do we know that this is repli- that you can replicate this again in 2020 is my question really Robert. Well, first way you know is um, I didn't get a big contract with Disney. <laughs> uh, I don't make tons of money. I don't run in the uh, big time uh, media circuit like that, and that it's not a fluke because it happened again in 2018, uh, especially. Uh, when the social desirability bias was very prevalent in the Florida U.S. Senate race. Uh, and you know I'm not GOP shill because also in 2018, to the chagrin of most of my Republican friends, I predicted that Tester would win that highly contested Senate race and that John James would lose in Michigan and Debbie Stabenow would win that highly contested race and that Evers would defeat um, uh, Governor Walker in Wisconsin and that um, no one, uh, that the fellow running against uh, Joe Manchin never really had a chance. Hmm. So those aren't really th- the things the Republican Shield says. Um, and we even got one of them wrong that year that we called for a Democrat and Republican one. So um, we're different uh, in that we actually do the polling. He runs pretty much an aggregator site that does an average of the polls mm-hmm. and then it predicts using that data. Mm-hmm. And I actually think, I think his analysis of data is very good. I've always said, I think uh, Nate is an exceptional statistician. Uh, he just believes that people don't lie to pollsters. Right. And that's where he and I are different. Right. I think that people lie all the time. 
I think it's hard to even conceive of the fact that in a day and age where, you know, people lie to their accountant and their doctor and their priest that suddenly they become honest day when they pick up the phone and do a poll. And I'll buy it. Meaning that you can be a great data analyst, but if your data is corrupted, you're just analyzing corrupted data. That doesn't, that's that, right. You can't, you can't, I, I've said before covering and working on campaigns, no campaign can rise above its own candidate. You can make a candidate better, but that, that's the water level of a campaign. You cannot rise above the candidate. Campaigns aren't on the ballot. Candidates are. Same thing is when you're, when you're an analyst, you, you can't rise above the quality of your own data. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's eventually going to oink. You cannot get above the, the data. And that's really the question is do you have access to better data than what we see in a lot of these public polls? And you talked about the social, uh, the, the what did you call it? I want to make sure I get the term exactly right, social, Robert. Social desirability bias. Social desirability bias. So, for example, right before we went on the air, at steve at stevedace.com, I got an email from Monmouth. Now, when I was on the cruise campaign, Monmouth was one of the few public pollsters we actually respected. All right. So Monmouth sent an email to steve at stevedace.com asking me to opt in uh, or asking that email address to opt in for their Iowa poll. That's where I live. Except the email was actually to my wife, Amy. So they sent an email to steve at stevedace.com asking my wife, Amy, if she would like to opt in and take their poll. Okay, and so I did it just because I wanted to see what what their questions were, um, and that's the, that's really the <laughs> well. That's really the question. How do you get how do you get that data? Because it seems to me a lot of your premise. I've read a lot about you and your group and a lot of interviews you've given, and it seems that you begin from the premise that there that people just don't want to pay the price of the public shaming that's going on in our culture right now if you don't take the leftist narrative on any particular issue and that's why these pollsters keep getting it wrong am i simplifying it too much a little bit i mean it's that the way they do i mean like we have some fundamental problems with the way they do it one i think they ask too many questions Mm -hmm. if your phone rings at seven o'clock on a Tuesday night when you've got children either about to eat or just finishing dinner, you got to got put kids to bed. You got, I mean, you got all kinds of, you got dishes to wash, you, you, you know, the, you're, and then the phone rings. I mean, what is it? 1955. We're sitting around the parlor. We're going to go, Oh, hello. It's a political survey. Well, let me sit down <laughs> and talk to these jets for a while. Right. No, that's ridiculous. And if you tell somebody, Hey, you know, this is going to be a short survey, less than three minutes of your time, you know, seven questions. People may hang on for that. But when they start down that path of answering a long survey, you've got three things going. You've got them. They're either too conservative because they care too much. They're either too liberal because they care too much. Or the worst thing is they're bored and they need somebody to talk to. But none of those three represent the average voter. And you're missing average voters with long questionnaires. You're just missing them. Second, we believe in, like I said, a a smaller uh, number of questions, but a larger sample size. We don't ever poll a state and give people results with under 1,000. I don't see how you think you're going to poll a state with 600 people. It's ridiculous. 1,000 gets you most of the time under uh, 3% margin of error. And it gets to the point where even with some weighting, you're not affecting the results that much. The, the bigger your sample size, as you well know if you've done this, mm-hmm. the, the less little tweaks even matter. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so we believe in a big sample size. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is we believe in lots of different ways of gathering the data. It's not just live calls. It's not certainly auto calls to home lines, which I think are virtually extinct. Um, it, 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 it's, it's calls to cell phones, it's text, it's emails, it's other digital methods of collecting the data. And we use all of them and whatever combination necessary for a given poll to get the demographic and geographic balance we seek. So to make sure that, that, that we get what we need. So we understand in this day and age, you have to work a little harder right now with the number of Republicans or conservatives who refuse to participate in the poll. You've got to work very hard to get a fair representation because five to one people that are Republican and voting for Trump don't want to answer the phone. They literally, the second they're off the phone, just won't participate. I was going to ask you about that so, because because I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm, I'm sure Mark Levin, Glenn Beck, everybody else here at The Blaze would say the same thing. I am inundated in my inbox, Robert, with viewers and listeners here to Blaze TV who say, I refuse to talk to these pollsters, or if I do answer, I want to, I want to discredit them because I know this media hates me, so I give them answers opposite of what I'm actually going to do just so we can further discredit them on election day. And I don't know, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence, um, obviously, it, it is, it's not necessarily of, of a scientific basis, but it can be a confirmation of, of, of an application of one, provided you don't have confirmation bias. So how much of that is a real thing? When you quantify it in your own methodology, how much of that is a real thing with with right of center voters that they either refuse to respond to these people or when they do they actively seek to discredit them by not even answering truthfully well i can't really speak to the actively seek to discredit but what i can speak to is the ratio it started out in most of the states at four to one refusal now it's five to one hmm. um uh and also in discussion with with others um, can we? Can you explain to our audience? Pardon me. I want. I want our audience to understand what that means. It means you've got to work five times harder to identify the vote in, in on one side of the electorate than you do the other. Can you? Right. That's what that means. You got to. That's you, exactly what it meant. So, so let let let's say if, if we had if we had a if we wanted to reach uh, twenty five Democrats. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then. For, to reach 25 Democrats, whatever the number of calls was, let's say let's say it took let's say it took 400 calls to reach 25 Democrats. All right. So what you need to do is now you need to consider that that is going to be five times that. So that that wow. would be two uh, thousand calls to reach the same amount of Republicans because they just refuse to 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 participate. Once they realize it's the poll, I mean you've got the right number. You've got the right person. They're just not going to do it. They refuse to participate. So what you have is pollsters who under what they start out saying, "Hey, we balanced our, our our universe that they're calling from." So they create a pool, a pool of numbers of people they're going to call, and they balance the pool to make sure they're you know a proper amount of Republicans, proper amount of Democrats, you know, proper amount of each each ethnic group, proper amount of each educational level, each geographic, I mean, all the things you would use to balance. And then they start and they randomly dial. Well, they're automatically setting themselves to not get, not get enough Republicans because it's not about balancing the, the universe you start with. It's about balancing your results and making sure you get each group represented well. And that's why we 
we go through it like the first night we go through and get everything we can. And then we go back and we say, where are our holes? Where are we short? You know, we didn't get enough of this group. We didn't get enough of that group. We, we didn't get enough people who fit. And so we are constantly using whichever method it takes to get to our balanced sample because we want to wait as little as possible. So what these guys are doing is they'll underrepresent Republicans and worse the people they do get on the phone that are Republicans are the ones who want to talk to a pollster, which are the ones who are the never Trump types. So although they're only like eight or nine percent of the Republican to answer the poll, they can't they want to participate. So then all of a sudden they overrepresent the people they reach. And then when they don't get enough Republicans, they wait up that number. So they're waiting up a sample that's already skewed. Other than that. They have a wonderful singing voice. So you're saying there's a chance. See, I think it's important for our audience, because I've walked them through some of what you're saying. Um, the the five to one rejection number is, I mean, astounding. That's the first time our audience has heard this. But but our audience is probably more sophisticated on this than most, just because of my own experience um, covering and being a part of campaigns at this level that I like to walk them through the inside baseball on this because frankly I think a lot of what they get told in the media as conservatives is false even from a place like frankly Fox News I think the entire operation is is to show conservatives they really don't have any influence in the process where I think the data says the exact opposite is true uh, when it's when it's presented accurately and so i i wanted them to walk through some of your methodology and they've probably heard I, i've got a, a break here in about a minute but the question that you guys asked in 2016 that other people are now ripping off well hey you got this one friend right uh the one friend who's got a itch down there that you, it's not you but it's a one friend uh the one the one friend who's going to vote for trump you won't but tell us about your friend right we got about 30 seconds you did a lot of that in 2016 are you doing that again in 2020 well, it wasn't the friend. It was it was called the neighbor. The neighbor, question. yes. Who would you say most of your nagging for? Yeah. And that makes people feel free to be more honest when they don't have to well, it, em- it, embrace it that stigma them themselves. What they really think. It lets them project what they really think. Yeah. And um, so, it, yeah, it, it, it lets them project what they really think. It's a technique I learned a long time ago. I don't steal stuff from people, so I will tell you, the man's deceased, but his name was Rod Sheila. He was a great American, and I, I learned a lot from him. So I learned from him. Now, some of the scurrilous people who work for Fox News polling, they use the neighbor question without giving proper credit. I'm glad you went there. So when we come back after the top of the hour, I want to ask you about a fascinating dynamic in the latest Fox poll where they used your question. And... And, and they and, didn't understand how to use it. That's well, I'm, I, that's what it seemed like to me. And then there were the historical context <laughs> that that is lacking in a lot of these polls. Um, and then the voter registration numbers. So I want to get into that with you when we come back here. Robert Kahalius, you're with us from Trafalgar Group. They nailed uh, the battleground state polling in 2016. And we're finding out what they think in 2020. Can they replicate their accuracy and success? We'll get into that more here on the other side on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast next.
And we're back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, over on Parlor at Steve Dace. Check out our new YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Steve Dace as well. If you're a podcast listener, thank you very much, whether it is Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you podcast the show from, if you wouldn't mind hitting that subscribe button for us, uh, leaving us a five-star review if you haven't done that already because the more of those we get the more it helps the show to grow we want to thank all of you that have done those two things as part of our podcast family already coming up at the bottom of the hour dr scott atlas will be joining us from the white house coronavirus task force he'll be a special guest for this week's segment of fake news or not as we try to separate the panic from uh, the real concern when it comes to the latest with COVID-19. Hey, did you know the average American has about 97 points that they can add? Almost 100, basically, uh, that they can add to their credit score, but has no idea how to access them because the banks own and hold all that information and they're not always the most forthcoming. Well, that's where ScoreMaster comes in. It's the new credit science that will help you super boost your credit score. What do we mean super boost? Well, the average ScoreMaster user can raise their score about 60 points in about 20 days. Why? Because they empower you with that information. Here, they will show you, walk you through, hey, here's exactly why your score is where it's at. And then here's exactly what you can do to get your score to where you want it to go and how long it will take you to get there. They empower you with the information that may be the difference between getting approval uh, for that car, home loan, business loan, or getting a better interest rate as well. Heck, a lot of days, in, a lot of employers nowadays are doing credit checks as part of their backgrounds as well. So enroll in minutes and take back control over your life and finances with ScoreMaster. See how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your score when you visit scoremaster.com slash steve again head over to scoremaster.com slash steve let's welcome back robert kahaley here from the trafalgar group they were the most accurate battleground state pollster in 2016 and we're talking about how they did it um and whether that methodology can then replicate itself in 2020 he's already pointed out it, it did pretty well in 2018 and what was a much more of a mixed year where Republicans lost 40 House seats, but ended up holding on to the Senate. And in and, and a little bit, we're going to take a look at some of his numbers uh, for 2020. And, and Robert, before we left, we talked about the Fox News, Fox News's latest poll. And when I walked my audience... Oh, I, I was just talking about their pollsters. I, I, I don't even pay attention to their polls anymore. Okay, well, I want to tell you what's in their latest poll, and I want to get your take on it as a professional, all right? Because if, 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 if you were our campaign pollster, and I was a senior strategist on a campaign, and you brought me this poll before I, we took it to the candidate, I'd be like, how are these things simultaneously true? Because the latest Fox News poll showed that Biden was widening his lead uh, on their top line. But then it also showed a widening gap of people in the same survey that actually believe Trump is going to win instead. Because I'd want to know, how, how, how do you know those people told you the truth? How, I mean, how are those two things simultaneous? So, so what you're telling me is, you, is, is that your voter file was full of people that are either bipolar or that lied to you. Because those two thi- those two assumptions can't be simultaneously true. They're either schizophrenic or false. Am I wrong in that analysis, Robert? Well, they could also be they could also be paranoid, uh, in which they think that they are against Trump, but everyone else 
is against them and for Trump. Mm-hmm. Let's consider the paranoia possibility. Okay, that's the one. Um, I agree. Yeah. But, but what I think is more the possibility is that people are projecting when they answer the question because people, I mean, you know, you got, look, you guys with the blaze, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the punishment of people for being conservative is is just unmeasured right hey, now. we're, we're fighting we're like fighting this. social media fact checkers that are trying we're, we're this we're the second largest conservative media company on this continent next to fox they're trying to demonetize us and deplatform at least somebody on our platform me beck crowder somebody every day that ends in y so you betcha we know what you're talking about robert you bet we do so in this environment where people are being doxxed, they're being attacked, all these things are happening. We're supposed to believe that people are just going to remain comfortable with expressing a view that is outside, you know, what, what is looked at positively. I mean, let, let's just say, for example, a person just thinks the whole mass thing is a joke, thinks it's stupid, they don't really take the coronavirus seriously. Let me let, let's say that person exists. It's one thing for them to think that and tell, and tell a few of their close friends that. But do you think they tell a stranger that on the phone? Of course they don't, because they will be judged for saying such a thing. It's like if you poll a room of 100 people, say, does anybody watch Jerry Springer? You'll get almost no one who says yes. <laughs> but if you went back and you checked their little Nielsen boxes, I bet you there's a percentage of them that do. One of the things I also talk about with our audience a lot, Robert, is is you have to acknowledge some historicity in your polling. There's always outliers, paradigms change, right? But if, if I could take all of the public polling and fashion it into one narrative, here's what, I, here's what it says, uh, the public, big media public polling, I should say. Here's what it says two weeks out before the, the election. It says that Joe Biden, at at a minimum, is a stronger candidate at this stage than Barack Obama was in 2008 when he had the, the largest Democratic presidential victory since LBJ in 1964, that he is on par uh, with FDR's final re-election campaign in 1944. It says that on one end, and then on the other end, it says that Donald Trump is going to challenge Herbert Hoover for the lowest percentage of the popular vote by an incumbent president when it's only a two-man race since the dawn of the two-party era post-Civil War. That's the meta-narrative of, of, the, of these public polls. And I just don't see, it doesn't mean that Biden won't win. I just don't see how either one of those is true when I look at everything else that dictates to me what the environment of an election is. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I, like I said, the thing that I think is, is the most at play in this entire election is the social desirability bias. And the reason people are so off is this, old-fashioned sticking to to strictly live callers i mean this is you know the gold standard of this and 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 they don't want that to change because the you know the the barrier to entry starts getting really cost effective when you look at other options besides live callers and now these guys can't charge exorbitant rates for what i believe at this point to be pseudoscience And, and and so they've got to defend you know they've got to defend this sacred cow with everything they have but the problem is People lie to people. Mm-hmm. The more anonymous someone is, the, the more anonymous they feel they are when they give their opinion, the more honest they are. So 
a lot of these people really believe these things are right. But, you know, every one of us knows somebody, most of us know tons of people who offer Trump, they've told us, but they don't tell anybody where they work. They certainly don't put it on social media. And because they just, they don't, they don't want the grief. I know, I, I know people that live in neighborhoods with other Trump supporters with signs in front of their house who say, you know, there's that one guy in the neighborhood who always just kind of looks kind of nasty and, and gets mad about politics. And I, I just, you know, they tell me, I just don't want to put a Trump sign in my yard because I don't feel like having that guy mad at me. Let's, that's duplicated all over the country. I mean, I, I didn't vote for Trump last time. I didn't think he'd be a good president. Um, he's turned out to be better than I thought. So I'm going to vote for him for sure this time. I know all kinds of conservatives like me that didn't vote for Trump four years ago. I don't, and are going to do it now. I don't like know any of them that did four years ago and aren't going to do it now. When I looked at last, Rasmussen had the most accurate national poll in 2016. Uh, about two weeks ago, they forecasted that Trump was going to lose 12 points of Republican support. That he was going to, that one out of every four Republican voters was not going to vote for Trump. That would be the lowest ratio. I went and looked. That would be the lowest ratio since George Herbert Walker Bush challenged Taft for the worst finish by an incumbent president ever when they both had credible third party candidates. Bush got 73% of the Republican vote. Trump doesn't have a Ross Perot. Trump's a hell of a lot more popular with his base. He didn't divide his base over no new taxes and start a civil war in his party the way Herbert Walker Bush did in his presidency. The idea that Trump was going to lose 12 points of Republican support. I just, I could not believe Rasmussen even published that. Am I wrong about that, Robert? Well, I'm generally complimentary of, of most of their work, um, but I realize it's a lot to be out on the slim. It's a lot. I know it's a lot because people tell me every day, man, you're out there all by yourself, man. It should be a lot easier if you just look close to what everybody else says. You wouldn't have to, you know, you would have to face all this attention and, and, and possible scorn if you get it wrong. And I'm like, but then I wouldn't be standing up for what I think is the truth. So, you know, I, everybody's got to run their own business in the way they think is best for business. I get that. And I understand that. Um, I, I, I just feel like, I, you know, I, I don't like, I don't think that that's, that's their best work. I think they're capable of better than that. Let's, let's look at the future. I've been walking my audience through these voter registration numbers. And the other day, I walked them through an experience I had with the Cruz campaign here in Iowa. So while I was working on the Cruz campaign, I was still doing a daily show um, here as well at the time. And I was like the only media member in America that predicted Ted Cruz to win Iowa. And it wasn't because I worked for the campaign. The reason people don't like me is I just want to know what the truth is, even if it's not what I want to be true. And I'll tell you what I think the truth is, even if it's not rah, rah, go team. That's why I don't have a lot of friends, frankly. Um... But the reason why I thought Cruz was going to win is because I knew voter registration data that the media did not know, that there was a massive movement happening in Iowa to get churchgoers who had never voted before uh, to come out and vote in the caucuses for the most principled candidate. Uh, like if and they've never had a chance to or never done that before. And of course, I knew that messaging was going to play to my candidate. 
And so everybody saw that we were going to have this huge amount of new voters in Iowa and just assumed it was Trump with his persona bringing new people to the process. And that was some of it. But on caucus night, 45% of the people that voted in Iowa had never voted in a caucus before. Cruz actually won that group and ended up winning the caucuses. And I pointed out to my audience that is new information that probably wasn't included in any call to Iowa that Monmouth made or Quinnipiac made. They probably didn't even know about that because we weren't like broadcasting that on the Cruz campaign at the time. We didn't want the other campaigns to know what we were doing. And I wonder how much of that kind of a dynamic is being missed by these pollsters. When you look at the, the, the GOP voter registration trend in these battleground states and across the country, I look at Florida, for example. Last week, Quinnipiac came out and said that, that Biden was going to win Florida by double digits. Now, keep in mind, they said DeSantis was going to lose by seven points in 2018. He's governor now. They said Biden was going to win a state where the average margin of victory in the last seven presidential elections is two and a half points. He was going to win it by double digits. And yet, since 2008, Republicans have erased over 70% of the Democratic voter registration in the state. The, the, the advantage <laughs> they had. How is that? That's not mathematically possible, what, Quinnipi- what Quinnipiac is no, asserting. of course not. Of course not. So how much of this voter registration information are they missing, do you think, Robert? Well, I don't think it's, you know, here's the thing. I think we all need to acknowledge there is an agenda to most of the polling we see out there. There is an agenda. The agenda, uh, I think, through the summer has succeeded in giving Democrats running for U.S. Senate and the Biden campaign a tremendous financial advantage. This was that was I mean, and I and I, I'm you know I'm going to call out. I think a lot of these guys are looking the other way and putting stuff out there that they know is not their best work. Because in the end, what was the punishment for getting it wrong in 2016? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. There wasn't one. Right. So so the thing is, if there's no punishment for getting it wrong, consider they didn't get it wrong. They just got to blame Russia for three goal, years. They just got to do that for three years. No, just blame no, Russia. Yeah. No, but consider that they didn't get it wrong. But their goal was to move an electorate right. instead of reflect an electorate. So in, in many ways, they're trying to get it more effective than it was last time. And, and I, I can't speak to you know which group is where. You know, I, I don't really know anything about why Quinnipiac would be the way they are. But I do know that there is what's called in polling a concept of herding which is everybody puts out kind of the same numbers and they feel like there's safety in the herd. Right. And obviously, you know, I guess I'm a black sheep or, 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 or the lost lamb because I, I, I just seem to avoid the herd like the plague. But, um, I mean, I, I see what's going on and I, I just, I, you know, nothing, it doesn't make sense. I don't buy into it. But I think that if you are relying, if you are believing that the people that you speak to are always telling you the truth, you could really be way off on this. Yeah. I mean, you could, you, you know, you could be so far off. It's just, you know, it's, it's not relevant. I mean, I, I always give the, you know, the story of when, when you approach the toddler with a face full of crumbs and ask him, did you eat the missing cookies? You know, he's, he's doing a calculation. Well, if you're asking him, it means you don't know that. I, he's going to give you the answers that are going to get him in the least trouble. He's not focused on the truth right now. And I don't think it gets better as you get older. Hmm. You know, what you're defining is something we talk a lot about on our show. That's the worldview battle going on in the culture. You're admitting human nature is flawed. 
Um, and so you're factoring that reality into your assumptions. The progressive worldview right, begins with the premise that human nature is basically good, and that's why we can achieve utopia. So they're just going to assume everybody's telling them the truth, and it's everything's a Pleasant Valley Sunday and hunky-dory. That's kind of what I hear you saying a little bit. That's exactly right, because nobody taught that title how to lie. Mm. So your forecast of where things stand, Donald Trump right now has the exact same percentage in the real clear politics polling average two weeks before election day, 42.3% that he had back in 2016 investors. Are you talking about the nationwide? Yeah. The nationwide poll. Yeah. So when you look at your battleground state stuff, what's the trend line you're seeing here in the final two weeks right now? I'm seeing all the negative trends that came from, the perceived hypocrisy of the Republicans putting a Supreme Court nominee up and pushing it through and not letting Obama do it and all their contrary statements were working against them, that's gone because people love Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, I'm seeing the uh, the impact of Trump going out and giving all these speeches and just basically destroying these little towns with it. With, with our media. I mean, just, just leveling them and like, like a bomb went off with so much attention. Um, these small newspapers, TV stations, all that kind of stuff with very little content, just giving them all the content they can handle. I'm seeing him moving the ball there. So I, I see all this stuff moving in the right direction. And um, I will stand by, I think the lowest I expect to see Trump is in the high 270s, but I think it's only up from there. I don't think Florida's in the dispute. Uh, I don't think uh, I think he'll win Florida. I think obviously Georgia and Texas. I, I don't know why people are talking about that. Um, North Carolina, I think is going to going to stay uh, Republican this year, and I think Arizona is too. So after that, all he needs is either Pennsylvania or Michigan or Minnesota or a combination of Wisconsin and Nevada, and so that's four paths to victory right there. I agree with your analysis. I, that was the map I gave our audience yesterday. That if people had to vote today, I think a lot. I think a couple of points of people that are that are annoyed with his pestering, immature behavior at the last debate in places like North Carolina and Arizona, I think would come home because I agree with what Frank Luntz said last week, which is people that are undecided don't like Trump's personality and don't like Joe Biden's policies. I agree with that. But I left those rust belts. Well, and they sta- also go ahead. Care about leadership. Yeah. They also care about leadership. I mean, what you just said is exactly right. They care about leadership, and they really, you know, they can talk about how much they don't like Trump, but when that husband and wife sit down and have that conversation about what's best for their children and yeah. their economic future yeah. and their 401k and their lifestyle, they're not for a market crash and more lockdowns. I can promise you that. I completely agree with you. I had when I did my little map though I kept all those Rust Belt states I grew up in Michigan I know that state well uh, my assistant Todd that you've been talking to he grew up in Wisconsin knows that state well we are a neighboring state of Minnesota we know that state well Pennsylvania has been the Republican Party's white whale since the 80s and, and Trump cracked the code those Democratic governors in those states I think the cheating that is going to go on I, I think is unlike I think it's I think all four of those states are going to be Cuyahoga County, Ohio. That's what I think. Okay. And and so how do, am I am I too paranoid? And then how does that factor into your analysis? Well, you know, I get, I get worn out from people for saying this, but if you if you read the National Review article yesterday and a few other interviews, you know this. I think Pennsylvania is the number one state that Trump is likely to win and lose because of voter fraud. Mm-hmm. Um 
And uh, I think, however, his margin in Michigan may be enough that it won't matter. So I, I, I really feel very good about Michigan because I think Michigan is the one place that the U.S. Senate candidate is really a, a absolute plus. John James, you're talking and, about. Yeah, um, he's an impressive yeah, individual. He is, a, I agree. he is a plus for the president, too, though. In states where the Senate candidate is kind of dragging him down a little bit, this is the state where the Senate candidate is helping expand avenues. So I, I think that, um, yeah, I think voter fraud is a real thing, but I expect it to affect Pennsylvania more than anywhere else. Robert, how can our audience thank you for being generous? I know we kind of. Uh, asked you at the last minute here on the fly to spend more time with us. I, I've really enjoyed it. I hope they did. Thank you for that. How can our audience follow you guys' work now from this time forward? What's the best way? Okay, just Robert Cahaley, uh, C-A-H-A-L-Y is my Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. And almost everything is, that's what we update the most and the most regularly. And uh, we, at this point, are probably going to put a poll out every other day and some days we'll be doing too. So, uh, got a, and a lot of other information we're putting out. So we'd love to, uh, ha- have you follow us and, um, stay in touch and we'll, we'll see what happens, but I think it's going to be a big surprise, um, on election day for a lot of folks. We are going to bug you again, man. Maybe like, see if we can grab you for a few minutes, the Monday, the day before the election. I've really enjoyed having you on. I've been following your work with keen interest and closely, Robert. Thanks for your time today, brother. God bless you. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Y'all too. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Before we get you guys' uh, thoughts on that conversation, hey, if you're looking to go into a uncertain real estate market in these unprecedented times, Todd. Bing. Thank you. Uh, it's it's tough going in and finding an agent that you can trust at any point in time, but especially right now, you want to make sure that you go in with a real estate agent. If you're going in, he's all in, he or she is all in for you. And where would you find such a per- person? Well, the name kind of says it all. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, realestateagentsitrust.com. Company started by Glenn Beck and some of his associates who were tired of agents who talked a good game, but then didn't deliver the results when they were needed the most. And so they thought, hey, let's start a referral service so other people don't go through what we went through of agents around the country whose track records have been fully vetted for a long standard of proven success and you're going to find that agent on that website realestateagentsitrust.com again go to realestateagentsitrust.com so gentlemen your thoughts on that conversation i hope the audience enjoyed it for me as a data nerd recovering uh uh campaign hack I enjoyed the heck out of that, by the way. But what did you guys think? Probably the most clarifying uh, data or commentary that we have had. In clarifying, I mean, as in something that actually something that actually makes sense here. And I'll just obviously speak for myself here. This whole discussion about social desirability bias. You know, when when I'm at least, again, just speaking for myself, you've probably taken this into account more or thought about it more because you have worked closely with data on campaigns. But it's tough for me sitting here in front of a camera talking to an audience that is incredibly conservative because this is a conservative media outlet. So the people who are most willing to part with their time and some cases money in order to bring this product into their homes are probably going to be very conservative. It's tough to think that there are people who are less engaged and sometimes a lot less engaged, but still conservative. And I think that's where this social desirability uh, bias comes into play as well. Because if you're in Colorado, are you more or less likely 
to answer a question honestly about use of marijuana than you are if you're in Alabama, great point, or Missouri, great point, or Iowa. Yeah. If you're just answering any survey about your masturbation habits, uh, Jeffrey Tubin notwithstanding. The CNN newsroom compared to the Blaze newsroom, for exa- example. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, you're probably not going to, <laughs> on, in any state, going to answer that question uh, very honestly whatsoever because there's a taboo. There's a taboo in Iowa about marijuana use because it's still illegal, mm-hmm. but not in Colorado because it's legal there. That's where the social desirability bias comes into play. People who are less engaged are probably going to be more concerned, I would imagine, just looking at the environment about what if I say that I'm actually engaged or for this taboo topic? In this instance, Donald Trump, what if I say that to this person? So they're extremely dissuaded from doing so. That affects the that affects the data, notwithstanding the pollsters apparent lack of interest in actually properly representing that's poisoning the well of the data there yeah and then it creates this feedback loop where donald trump is further and further down in the pools and so i feel less and less obliged to actually say what i think to on this person who called me up maybe or this person i'm talking to online who says hi dennis um uh is do it, it you know uh Here's all this data I already have about you. Are you voting for this terrible, racist, misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, what have you? It's just this feedback loop. And what Robert said there about just facing the facts, he essentially said this, and it was about uh, five to ten minutes before the end of the, 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 the interview. It's the answer to the question that I wanted the answer to about this election. What really is the purpose of public polling? Is it to... Find a snapshot of where the electorate is on a given day, or is it basically programming? Yeah. Is it just it's narrative a perpetuation? Narrative yep. perpetuation. And he said basically, right now it's narrative per- perpetuation. But one more thing, and I'll let you talk to Todd. Sorry. Uh, I, I really believe as well, we're starting to see some of the polls tighten a little bit. It would be, it would be very appropriate, would it not? For all the polls to tar- start to tighten just a little bit so that the pollsters can say, hey, uh, we, we, saw were actually right. we saw this trend line. Yep. We were actually right yep. when this entire summer, yes. this entire summer, they couldn't have been more wrong. You nailed it. And, and Todd, I want to, as I transition to your thoughts, another key thing that Robert said there is, is the five to one ratio of Republicans who don't react or respond compared to Democrats. Let me quantify for you what that means. So the New York Times has its own polling with Siena College, right? All right. So do you believe as a one-on-one transaction, does the New York Times give people like us and our viewpoints and narratives on issues, does it give it a fair shake just on a one-on-one level? No. Okay. What you're basically then having to assume to believe the New York Times poll is that you have to assume a news agency who doesn't give you a one-on-one benefit of the doubt in its news coverage when it goes to pull you is then going is then willing to work five times as hard to find out what you really think as the people that represent the narrative that it's perpetuating. That's just not how human nature works. They would have to have superhuman, extraordinary levels of integrity in order to then 
in order to say you can't write a column, Tom Cotton. You can't. We won't publish your column on our op-ed page at the New York Times, but we will spend five times the amount of money because all these calls cost money. We will spend five times the amount of money on an effort identifying Tom Cotton's voters, even though we won't run his op-ed on our op-ed page. Does anybody believe that that's happening? Of course it's not. I love Robert's, you know, it's 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 the accent, but there's just a folksy uh, sort of, um, sort of, you're a special kind of stupid, aren't you, when he's talking about things. <laughs> because really, you, you, the newspapers hate you. Your sports, uh, t- Hollywood, uh, all of that, they hate you. You get this on a regular basis. There are mobs in the street tearing down statues of uh, Thomas Jefferson. Facebook and Twitter are eliminating the Judiciary Committee and the Speaker for the President of the United States. You know, you're not paranoid if they're really following you. Hmm. And you know what? Yeah, you are going to sit on what the truth of the matter is as tightly as that Christopher Christopher Walken story in Pulp Fiction where he smuggled that gold watch out of, you know, out of wherever he did through, uh, in his backside because that's the only way it was going to get it out. Nice Man, reference. Honest to God, of course they're not. This they hate the system. They resent the system. Why? Because they've been on the other end of that for years now, and this is the one thing that they feel that they can control. Very well said, both of you. And uh, again, want to thank Robert Cahaley for giving us more time than we originally asked for. And now. We'll be joined by Dr. Scott Atlas from the White House Coronavirus Task Force when we return here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Stay tuned. Back here on Blaze TV radio and podcast, and we are honored uh, to be joined. It has been uh, several months, but uh, we are honored to have back with us Dr. Scott Atlas now with the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And it's a pleasure, Scott, to have you with us. And on a personal note, I'm just uh, grateful uh, to see uh, that your wisdom and platform has increased since we last talked to you in May and uh, appreciate the contribution that you're making to the country, sir. I just wanted to say that before we got into the interview. How are you? Uh, good. Well, thanks for saying that. It's uh, good to have at least a little bit of support. <laughs> <laughs> a wise man once said, you know a lot about a man from the enemies that he has. So I think it speaks very well of your character, sir, at least in our corner of the universe. So a series of a series of questions we have. We do a segment each week on the show, Fake News or Not. You are our special guest this week. We're trying to figure out what's real news and what's not. So some questions we wanted to ask you, Dr. Atlas, the latest on the virus. The first is, when it comes to masks, that's the new debate now, masks. I'm not anti-mask, all right? I actually suggested on this show in March, why don't we just wear masks instead of locking everything down? And a lot of people like Dr. Fauci and others said masks don't work. We don't need to wear masks. And now they're telling us that it's the, now Robert Redfield is telling us it's better than a vaccine, Uh, At least that's what he said to Congress, even though we see real time data in countries and cities around the world and states where they do mask mandates. And it doesn't seem to be at least maybe it isn't an individual setting, but in a wide populace, it doesn't seem to be a successful mitigation strategy. But am I wrong? What's the real data on the mask, Scott? Okay, well, this is somehow taken on a life of its own, this issue about masks. 
uh, as if it's the only thing that counts. But this is just one of the several uh, obsessions that have happened during this pandemic. And, and honestly, it's an indication of the of how off the rails the whole discussion is, how, how hysterical the country is. And this country is not wired in the level of hysteria, by the way, uh, compared to anywhere else in the world. That's just my introductory statement. Okay, the policy uh, that the president has, and my own advice on policy, is masks should be worn when you cannot socially distance, particularly when you are a high-risk or uh, near a high-risk person. Um, And that is exactly, exactly the policy that is articulated on the NIH website, which I'm going to read here because I happen to have it sitting here, quote, when consistent distancing is not possible, face coverings may further reduce the spread of droplets from individuals with SARS uh, to infection to others, unquote. The issue that uh, was censored on on, uh, Twitter, and I think this is very important for people to understand, is I I stated uh, that the widespread use of masks as a mask mandate for the general population uh, first didn't work when it was used to stop cases, and that's proven, that's not arguable. In L.A. County, Miami-Dade County, Hawaii, Alabama, the Philippines, Japan, the United Kingdom, Spain, France, Israel, and other places. That's that. That was in my tweet. Two, the uh, Professor Carl Hennigan of the University of Oxford, who is the director of the Oxford Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, he's also editor-in-chief of British Medical Journal's Evidence-Based Medicine, said, quote, that despite two decades of pandemic preparedness, there is considerable uncertainty as the value of as to the value of wearing masks, unquote. That was in my tweet. The other thing that was in my tweet was a reference to the World Health Organization that says, quote, the widespread use of masks by healthy people in the community setting is not yet supported by high quality or direct scientific evidence and there are potential benefits and harms to consider, unquote. That was in the tweet that was censored. We also know uh, that masks, uh, you know, are, are important for medical procedures, or at least are customarily used for medical procedures, like the procedures I have done hundreds of times in my medical career, uh, as opposed to an epidemiologist who's never done a procedure, parenthetically. And that is that masks uh, are used to prevent you from infecting a nearby sterile situation by coughing or sneezing, or in, in a medical world, in, a, in an open wound mm-hmm. uh, that is supposed to be sterile. And so, you know, public uh, policy uh, com- involves common sense and looking at the data. And so, to me, the policy of the president, the policy that I have advised, the policy that I was involved in uh, setting here was that is appropriate because it's common sense, it's rational, it's when you're high risk or when you're in a high risk setting particularly, but masks should be worn when you cannot socially distance. If you're socially distancing, if you're in the middle of a desert, if you're driving in your car alone, if you're walking through a park outside alone, it is nonsensical 
pseudoscientific, irrational to think you should wear a mask. And I'm sorry, but that that's just uh, that's what a that's what a normal person I think would agree with. I would say something further that anyone who would say masks are not are, masks are better than a vaccine uh, should not be in a position of of, uh, of 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 publicly even speaking about this issue. That is a really really dangerous statement. Uh, you know that is. That is a statement that will literally kill people if people uh, listen to that statement because high-risk seniors uh, who are in the highest-risk category for this disease are absolutely not more protected by wearing a mask than getting a vaccine. Let's go to lockdown, Scott. Uh, I've read this morning, Chicago's talking about another lockdown with a second wave. The European countries that were all doing better than us, according to the media this summer, all looking at new waves of lockdowns. Hong Kong's done three waves of lockdowns. Did lockdowns work anywhere in the world? Anywhere? Well, (laughs) the problem with the whole discussion is people didn't even understand. They lost track of why these societal shutdowns were being done. The original shutdown uh, that that everyone was was sort of, was totally okay with was back uh, in the early stages of the pandemic when we didn't know the information. It was blind. The, basically, the world was blindsided by this, and that information that we had said that the case fatality rate was astronomical three to three to three point four percent. Actually, I think was the number. And uh, the world was, no one was prepared for something like that. There, there, it was impossible. So there was, a, I think, a totally appropriate shutdown for short term to do two things. But number one was 90% of it, which was flatten the curve, quote unquote, this magical phrase that really had a meaning. And that meaning uh, was to stop hospitals from being overcrowded uh, so that these, these people could be treated and so that other medical care could go on because other medical care is essential. And what then happened, uh, well, the secondary gain of that was that we could have some time to mobilize resources, ramp up production of necessary equipment, including protective equipment, including ventilators, uh, and also buy some time with developing uh you know, at least in the short uh, term help, uh, develop, trying to develop uh, vaccines and drugs, which of course don't happen overnight. And that was a, that was a smart strategy. And in the United States, uh, you know, that, that actually uh, was useful. There were very few, if any, there were some, but it was rare hospitals that were overcrowded. There was a development, uh, an immediate mobilization of emergency hospital beds of personnel. There was a development a successful development of, of protective equipment, personal protective equipment, as well as ventilators. There was never a single person in the United States that needed a ventilator that didn't get one. There was a massive testing program uh, developed from scratch, unprecedented. And uh, by the way, there was a start given to say, uh, developing drugs that are really important. And, the, you know, the Operation Warp Speed effort by the president, the administration, was a, was a study uh, that, that will be, uh, you know, that will be, uh, it was remarkable and it will be emulated in the, in the future because it was a very smart, tailored strategy to do things 
safely and fast uh, with the private sector. And in addition, by the way, a stockpile was prepared for future uh, pandemics. So this stuff was smart. After the short-term shutdown, though, it got out of hand. People didn't understand all of a sudden the purpose of the shutdown. The purpose of the shutdown was absolutely not to stop all cases of COVID-19. It was not to stop all hospitalizations, and it was not to stop deaths. That was not at all the reason for the shutdown. There were other things done to stop uh, deaths, and not, not just these longer-term development of drugs, but, of course, using social distancing, which is important, doing protection of seniors, uh, particularly prioritizing their equipment that, that they need to protect themselves, prioritizing testing to nursing homes, prioritizing infection control, prioritizing testing of the staff members that come in there, alerting communities with seniors, even in senior centers that are non-residential, all kinds of things. But in terms of flattening the curve, it had nothing to do with stopping the cases per se, because when you do a lockdown, as we have seen all over the world, as you alluded to in your question, when you do that, you do not eliminate the virus. No shutdown eliminates the virus. The virus is there. All you do is delay the infection. And so we see the countries that were uh, somehow convincing themselves they had, quote unquote, defeated the virus. Uh, And other uh, odd, really, really irrational proclamations were made. And and those are wrong. And we see it all over the world uh, because the virus is there. And, uh, you know, it was delayed. And so what is the danger of doing that? Well, there's a danger of doing that. The danger of doing that, and particularly I'll give you an example in the United States, which is where we live. Um, when you have a person who's a public policy person recommending testing asymptomatic people, confining or isolating those people, healthy, relative, uh, healthy people, younger people, but asymptomatic people, People who are in the workforce, by the way, um, you're going to isolate them for two weeks. You're going to limit in-person schools because you're going to test schools, trying to find asymptomatic uh, children that are extremely low risk in low risk environments, colleges and schools, low risk environments. You're going to shut them down. You're going to restrict business hours. You're going to introduce these very bizarre, arbitrary things like shutting bars after 11 p.m. This kind of stuff paralyzes society, and is, literally is, the definition of lockdown. And when you do that, for instance, now in the United States, if you were to try to do that, you're going to delay the cases. You're going to push the cases. You're not going to eliminate the virus, right? Remember, the virus is there. You're going to see the cases. What you're going to do is have these cases come later in the winter. What's the problem with that? Well, in the winter... We do not have the ability in most of the United States to use social distancing from our elderly family members. We do not have an ability uh, to uh, eat outdoors, Mm -hmm. have entertainment, see our family outdoors, because people are shut inside because it's cold out. This is the reality. And when you do that, and you couple that with the knowledge that the majority of cases, the most most frequent place where cases are spread is in the home, Mm -hmm. not outside in the park, not outside in the stadium, in the home. And when you have that situation, and now you push cases into the winter, 
in places in the Midwest, in the near west of the United States, on the East Coast, wherever you're going to do these so-called lockdowns and limiting businesses and limiting uh, all these things, you're going to kill people. You're going to kill people because you're not going to have the capacity, the potential ability to use social distancing from the elderly. And that is what saves lives. And so uh, that doesn't even take into account the debacle of what happens during a lockdown, which means that you have not only eliminated medical care, and I've said this many, many times, but the more recent data is, you know, you have 46% of all of the six most common cancers in the United States were not diagnosed during, during this uh, shutdown, partial shutdown. And by the way, no matter how these public health people say, oh, they're opposed to the lockdown, then their policies, though, mean lockdown. doesn't mean that everyone's zipped up in a bag, isolated from the universe. It means that there were restrictions on in-person school, restrictions on businesses, paralyzing international travel. And these things, again, I want to start by saying they eliminate medical care. And they eliminate medical care not because hospitals are closed. They eliminate medical care because these kinds of things with these frenzy statements and focusing on what we don't know and focusing on everybody must be testing, 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 even though they're asymptomatic. And we show that we should seek out tests in toilet water in universities and all these nonsensical things, they're destructive because they eliminate the medical care. These cancers didn't go away. They're just not diagnosed. People will come in and get them later, more widespread disease. Many of them will die. We didn't do the living organ donor transplants. 85% of them were not done. Two-thirds of cancer screening was not done. Half of 650,000 people on chemotherapy didn't come in for chemotherapy. We didn't get uh, acute stroke and acute heart attack patients didn't call the ambulance. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear involved in going into a medical facility. And so there's a massive health care crisis now. Half of immunizations didn't get done. The U.N. says 130 million people in the world will be in abject starvation-level poverty because of these lockdowns. Uh, you have 400,000 more people will die from tuberculosis because of diversion of resources from that disease. We have massive problems with malaria that are going to come up because the Africa's malaria program was eliminated. And, you know, you have all of these disasters of closing schools because in-person schools are not, not substituted by online learning that's a luxury of the rich hmm. and most people they don't have that sort of thing right it's a massive destructive process for low-income families for working class families who have been destroyed and when we look at children we notice even just in the two months of spring school closure more than 200,000 cases of child abuse went unreported and they still occurred but they went unreported because the number one agency for reporting child abuse is the school. And now we look at other things like longer term. I've got 10 seconds, problems. Scott. I've got 10 seconds for I got to okay. go. 25% of people who are college age in the United States thought of killing themselves in the month of June due to the lockdown. The lockdown is a heinous, heinous abuse of government misguided policy. Amen. 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 This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.